is Brad Washabaugh. I am a Marine Corps veteran and member of the Veterans Breakfast Club. Uh, the Veterans Breakfast Club uh, mission is to create communities of listening around veterans and their stories to heal, connect, educate, and inspire. And what we've been doing is with this Veterans Breakfast Club History Project is an oral history uh, initiative that's dedicated to preserving the stories of our military veterans of all branches and areas of service. And storytelling is, is important to us because we really believe there's power in storytelling and that listening is the best way to thank a veteran. And we're very happy this morning to have with us Marine Corps veteran Stu Blackwell. He was an infantry leader with combat experience in Afghanistan. He is also a podcaster, a soon-to-be-published author, father of two, husband, and a passion for storytelling. So let's get right into it. Stu, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Doing just fine. Yourself? Well, doing good. And it's so exciting to be talking to another Marine and another Marine infantryman. I've uh, heard bits and pieces of your story, and it really has me uh, very interested in hearing more about you and your time in the Marine Corps and your reflections on, on looking back. Let's start at the beginning about becoming a Marine. Can you tell us a little bit about your decision to become a Marine and that uh, first entry into the Marine Corps? Well, um, so 2007, um, you know, was uh, my last year in high school. And at that point, like most young men, I had to decide what I'm going to do with the rest of my life. Uh, <laughs> so I knew that if I uh, went into went to college, I would just party away the opportunity. And it just, that typical flow of life, you know, college and then marriage and kids and then just work to death didn't really appeal to me. I, I, I wanted challenge and adventure, you know, and, and the Marine Corps offered that. They, um, they afforded me that opportunity. Um, and so I enlisted in the spring of 2007, right before I graduated. And come July 1st, I was standing on the yellow footprints. Um, yeah, <laughs> summer fun. months in Paris Island, not fun. You know all about that. Uh, sand fleas and uh, everything else that goes with that, that infernal place. <laughs> but why the Marine Corps? Uh, what influenced you about the Marine Corps and not another branch of service? So um, I had an older brother that was a Marine um, at the time. And, you know, I, I saw this this monumental shift in him. You know, like many younger brothers, I idolized him. Um, and the change from a diehard college athlete to a profession, a true profession, um, was unlike anything else that I had ever seen before. You know, and I, I went to Paris Island for his graduation. You know, I saw everything and the ceremony got me, you know, that, that recruiting tool, it got me. Um, and so I, I wasn't going to let him outdo me, you know, um, and we were we were at war, you know, at the time. Um, and so if I was going to do this, I was going to go all in. And so I asked for an infantry contract and I was lucky enough to get it. They had the boat space available and I went active duty and, uh, you know, just a, you know, just a one up him, I guess he was in the reserves at the time. Um, <laughs> and that's that's how that happened. You know, was anybody else in your family? Uh, did they serve in the military besides your brother? Um, so my paternal grandfather, uh, he served 
shortly after the Korean War in the Navy. He was on the, uh, I believe the USS Wisconsin. Uh, it's the one that's still up there in, in Norfolk as a museum. A battleship, a battleship yeah. Yeah. And um, yeah, but it was a it was a short time. He did not make a career of it or anything. He came back home and settled with my grandmother in Georgia. So boot camp, um, what was that like uh, for you? And and did you feel and see the transformation happening to yourself? You saw it in your brother. What, what was it like for you? So um, it was, um, and I was a little bit better prepared than than some of my peers just due to my athletic history. I wrestled all through high school, you know, and it, it's more of a a mental toughness and endurance based sport, you know. Uh, so that kind of put me ahead of the curve a little bit. But um, the the discipline aspect of it, the you know, having to speak in the third person and, you know, working in a team in those types of environments, uh, that was the most challenging part to it. And, um, you know, I remember distinctly that moment of hiking back from the crucible and that change, you know, our, our drill instructors from that point had been exactly what Marine drill instructors have been for so long. You know, they were loud, they were vicious, you know, they were, they were ironclad and disciplined. And that march back was characterized by, you know, more of a, a joyous occasion. You know, mm -hmm. we, had, we had passed through that and we were on this final journey, but it wasn't so much about, you know, that thought of, am I going to make it through this? Wasn't there anymore. You know, it was somewhat of a victory march, you know. Um, and I remember getting my Eagle Globe and Anchor and that feeling of pride actually brought tears to my eyes. Um, and... <laughs> Little did I know what lay in front of me. And, you know, I, I often think about if, you know, present me could, could have a conversation or say one thing to that young man standing on a parade deck, it would just be, wait until you see what's ahead, man. You know, the, the real development did not begin until after I got to SOI. And that's what kicked things off. You know, it, it's one of those rare moments that kind of altered things a little bit. And for uh, listeners, SOI is a school of infantry, uh, which is, uh, I understand you went on the East Coast, SOI East. Yeah. I'm going to put you on the spot here, Stu, and ask yeah. you, every time I talk to Marines, they seem to recall the name of their drill instructor almost instantaneously. So I'm going to ask you, do you remember the name of your drill instructor? Uh, yes. Yeah, so Staff Sergeant Fox was our... Um... He was our senior drill instructor. Our kill hat was Sergeant Barbetta. And we got that something got moved around with, you know, our um, our heavy hat, um, Staff Sergeant Brooks. He got moved somewhere else and we got a Sergeant Brake um, to come in as well. Um, uh, so Barbetta was a infantryman. He was a security forces Marine. I'm not sure about the other three, but uh, there was definitely a difference in him that you know, a certain intensity that the others just weren't able to match. Well, is boot camp anything like you see in the movies or portrayed in Hollywood and Marine Corps boot camp, your your recollection? The, the closest adaptation that I've seen to it is still um, Stanley Kubrick's Full Metal Jacket. Oh, really? You know? Um, 
And granted, this was, you know, 2007. I'm not sure what's changed since then. Um, but yeah, that was that was the closest that I've seen to it. And Hollywood just in general is not a very good source to consider. You know, that's something that I think a lot of people could could benefit from. Um, read a book. There's a lot of really good books out there. Or go talk to a veteran. Go talk to somebody that's been through it before. Or if you really, if you really want to know what it's like, there's recruiting stations around. Sign your name. Go get that adventure. Go get that experience. It will change your life. So most Marines, they, they remember three names. I asked you about your drill instructor, but the three that influence a Marine greatly are your recruiter, of course, your drill instructor, and a combat instructor. So now you graduate from Paris Island. You come home on leave and you report to the School of Infantry or SOI. Can you tell us about your infantry training at the School of Infantry and, and, and who, who really influenced you greatly while you were there? So um, all of them collectively did have a different sort of influence, you know, and a lot of that is due to the different nature of that specific school. And it, it's done by that by design. And I think it's a very good design because the emphasis moved away from drill and ceremony and general conduct of a Marine that, you know, we were, we were trained for in Paris Island. And that shifted to shoot, move, and communicate on a like a very macro level, okay. And um, there was a man by the name of at the time Sergeant Cassie, uh, who was a a combat instructor. Now only spent about the first opening phase where we were doing our general training, uh, and then we broke down into our specific infantry MOSs. He went with the mortars to teach all of them, but later he would come to second battalion six marines and we would we would fight in marja together so yeah. The, yeah i know marine corps just gets smaller and smaller as you move up you know and that was my first little taste of that yes. um but the, the the thing about soi is it, it served as that base for everything else you know the nature of the infantry lifestyle and you know i stress lifestyle not job because it is a lifestyle is is very different than the rest of the services and it has to be that way for for the fact that you know we deal in moral consequence you know um i give the example on my podcast of being an accountant you know so you're an accountant and you know it's tax season you do your work and everything. You happen to fudge the numbers or something like that for your company. Well, as long as you didn't do anything illegal, worst case scenario is you're getting canned. That sucks. Mm -hmm. But at the end of the day, you can find another job and you can bounce back for that. Um, in the infantry, if you don't pull your weight, you don't watch your sector, you can't hit your target, you fall asleep on post, the wrong person gets killed. And nobody wants to be the guy that has to come home from that deployment and look at a three or four year old and explain to them, you don't have a father because I couldn't do my damn job, right. you know? So that that gravity um, of what we had actually committed to started to come into play, you know? Um, but it was a lot more physically demanding and mentally demanding, the nature of the training. Um, you know, we rarely ever ran in, you know, 
green, you know, green shirt and green shorts and tennis shoes and stuff. It was all designed around combat functionality. So moving weight over distance and through rough terrain, competing with the elements, um, and you know, obstacle courses, fighting, um, and incorporating any form of combat skill that we could as often as we possibly could. You know, and that pattern, that mindset around how we train that followed me throughout the entirety of my career um now when you were at soi we were at war right in iraq and uh yes yes so how did that impact on your thinking as a student and learning the infantry trade knowing that there was a good chance you would be going to to war well i i was fortunate enough to have you know, to have the influence of my my older brother and my father as well. Um, so that, and they made sure that I understood that before I ever signed the contract, you know. Um, that was accepted before I put pen to paper. And I had to come to terms with the reality that if I go through with this, I'm probably going to get what I asked for, you know. So uh, I... I don't have anything to compare it off of as far as, you know, peacetime SOI, obviously, uh, that's more your department, but I imagine that there was a, a different sense of urgency that our combat instructors had, and that probably contributed to the conduct of the course. Yeah, I can remember for the listeners, I, I was a commander of the School of Infantry East, and there was on the headquarters, I don't know whether it's still there or not, but there was a display of all the dog tags of fallen Marines, and it was quite a collection of dog tags, and it was purposely done to remind students that this was a very uh, serious uh, serious uh, part of their careers as training and as learning to become an infantryman. The stakes were high. A lot that you were talking about. There's there's very little margin for error, and when there is error, the the consequences are, are usually pretty pretty bad. So you you've gone from uh, recruit training and you're being shaped as an infantryman. Uh, you graduate from SOI, and how long was that? Was it 48 days, 60 days in SOI at that time for you? Uh yes, two months give or take. Uh, we had so we had the Thanksgiving holiday in there that may have change the actual count of it but um yeah it, it didn't i don't think that that really affected the quality of training that we have it's still it served its purpose in building that foundation of of discipline and toughness that all future development was cemented in so as you graduated from recruit training and as you graduated from soi how did those two compare how did you feel individually and how did you feel as a marine at those two periods of time <laughs> Okay, so very different experiences. Uh, graduating from um, from recruit training was very a very prideful, very triumphant feeling, you know. Uh, and there's not a single person alive, I think, that doesn't you know relish the uh, moment that they get to leave that place. Um, but uh, SOI was a lot more toned down. We had a graduation ceremony that was. I don't know, maybe like 20 minutes long. It was in a gym, you know, there weren't a whole lot of parents or anything like that there. It was just kind of like, hey, the Marine Corps requires us to have a graduation ceremony. So here you go, check the box, right? And on top of that, I knew that I was going right down the road to 2-6. There was no flight or anything like that. Uh, there was no, 
um, leave period or anything. I had my stuff already packed. I was going to throw it on a bus and, you know, I'd be there by the end of the night. <laughs> so after graduating, you mentioned, yeah, you mentioned two six and for the listeners, we'll, we'll just uh, clarify that as a second battalion, sixth Marines, a battalion of six Marine regiment located at Camp Lejeune, North Carolina. So now you report aboard as a new guy in uh, two six. Tell us about your experience uh, going into an actual deploying operational unit of 2nd Battalion, 6 Marines. Um, so there was a lot more was expected of us. Um, you know, all the things that we just discussed in SOI now had a higher urgency placed on them. So just to paint the picture here a little bit, um, I showed up in December of 2007 and the senior marines that were waiting on us had just returned from a deployment in fallujah iraq um uh, it was i want to say one maybe two cycles after operation phantom fury and i believe that ramadi was the main fight in iraq at this point in time um afghanistan was not so much on our radar but the significance of that is you know they are responsible for training us and preparing us to go to war and you know since we don't know right off the bat like hey you're going to deploy here on this date um that's the only thing they had to go off of that was their experience so that's what they were training us for um physically uh it got harder uh, mentally it got harder and there was always uncertainty involved with everything that we did you know at the time i didn't really understand it but there was a certain there was like a small amount of genius involved with the way that they did things you know um so i was required to have a mouthpiece on me at all times just like every other every other new marine or boot as we're affectionately called and we would just we would be called out to fight at random you know you could be on your way to the chow hall or just getting done with a morning pt session or you know just getting done with a machine gun class or something like that and it's hey Blackwell and you fight, you know, so you had to be ready for that at any point in time. And uh, so that that kind of heightened everything a little bit. There was always that sense of urgency, that sense of expectation that something was always on the horizon. You know, um, I was treated like a grown man. You know, there was no coddling. There was no babying um, and nobody was going to hold my hand either. The expectations were set forth very clearly by my team leaders. And there were consequences when you didn't follow through with what you were supposed to follow through with. Now, having said that, though, um, there was a reason behind every correction. And typically, the punishment matched the crime, quote unquote. Um, you know, so nobody, you know, stripped me naked and covered me in green jello and made me street through downtown Jacksonville or anything crazy like that, you know. I wasn't force-fed liquor or anything like that, you know. Uh, but if I dropped my rifle, I could expect to do push-ups until my arms fell off because right. the rifle is not meant for my protection. The rifle is meant for the protection of everybody else in the squad, you know, and it's incumbent on my skill to be able to to employ that weapon system. So everything was – it reinforced the sense of urgency that, uh, you know, the environment is underscored by moral consequence. Yes. Constantly. Yes, I've listened to your podcast, which we'll talk about later. But uh, this infantry culture 
that you're describing, you're getting into it now after graduating from SOI where you've had some basic skills and you're, you're, you're on the continuum now for, for getting some more skills. But this culture that you're getting into, I don't think most of our listeners really understand what it means to be an infantry man, uh, to be in the infantry. Uh, you know, obviously you're out there hiking, you're carrying a weapon, but there's things beneath the surface and you're getting, you're hitting upon some of those, how you're counted upon to do your job, how you're expected to always be a master of your profession. Can you talk a little bit more about this infantry culture that you're being assimilated into and, and how that helped shape your later deployments? So the, the first thing that, that I think is, is key to understanding this is in order to have some sort of um, accurate understanding, I guess you could say, um, it, it's going to go against the grain of, you know, what the typical view is, you know, and, and that first thing is that mass generalization of the military. Um, the military umbrella is what I, what I call it and what I refer to it in my book. Um, and if you think of it in levels, so on and so forth, you know, you have that mass, that mass generalization of the military. And then beneath that, you have each service. Okay. And beneath that, you have each occupational specialty. So if you were to actually write all of that out, it would cover in, you know, the entire wall behind me. Mm -hmm. uh, that's how large the organization is. The reason why that mentality, that, that, that generalization is so, in my opinion, frankly, just flat out wrong, is because when you have this many people involved in such endeavors, it glosses over all of the, the minute social interactions that have to take place in order for anything to get done, okay? It doesn't allow for the complexity of human emotions that are involved and how people work together and you know how they develop co cohesion okay and also the fact that everybody develops at a different pace you know you have some guys that come in and they just they're studs you know yeah. um, most guys that come in are not there's sort of like a middle of the line curve there and then you have you know the back end the 10% that just kind of suck you know mm -hmm. uh, that's not unique you know that that's typically the way that it is in most organizations um, but the culture itself is driven by that moral consequence, okay? And another thing to note is that it has to be separate from that of American society in order to be successful. Now, that's going to rub a lot of people the wrong way, but think about it and consider it like this, right? The infantry has two purposes. The first is constitutional defense, and that's cited in our oath of enlistment. Okay, that's for all service members. Okay, the infantry's overarching mission, though, is to locate, close with, and destroy the enemy by fire maneuver and to repel the enemy assault through fire in close combat. Okay, so operating off of that overarching mission, and then considering the fact that when we deploy, we go to places where traditional American values either no longer or never have existed. Mm -hmm. And then you add in the moral consequence along with it. If you can't function in that type of environment, the wrong person will get killed. Right. Okay. 
So there's the justification for it, all right? Um, I believe that what separates any culture is its system of values, you know? Um, and while our values as, as Americans may differ very much from those of the infantry, um, it doesn't necessarily mean that one is wrong or one is right. Uh, I think that it's just a product of the realities of the situation. And, you know, I, I speak about this at length and in depth, uh, you know, on, on other platforms and stuff and, and the book, obviously, uh, which we can elaborate on a little further. But the the overall arching mission is that it, it has to be different for that reason, you know, and it's not pretty, um, but it is necessary if we want to avoid filling more more body bags than we need to. Uh, now, obviously, you didn't feel or feel or realize this when you entered the Marine Corps, but now that you're in a deploying infantry unit, I guess these things are becoming aware to you and, and they're becoming reinforced and mm -hmm. emphasized by your by the leaders in your unit, but also by yourself with a self-realization uh, of what your responsibilities were as a member of an infantry team. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I look at, uh, you know, some of the leadership that I had and <laughs> as I'm older, I, I, I realize now how frustrating it, it must have been for them to have to deal with, you know, the, the constant questions and, you know, the me just not understanding some of the things that um, that they were trying to teach me and everything, you know, but they they forwent you know, small freedoms that we enjoy in this country, you know, every single day, like uninterrupted privacy. Um, you know, they had me calling them or going down to their room in the barracks and knocking on the door. Like, hey, you know, Lance Corporal, I don't understand this. Can you explain this to me, please? Or, hey, Corporal, I can't find information on X subject. You know where I can look. Um, and that must have been difficult for them, especially, you know, since we're around each other all the time. Um, but at every single turn, there was never, well, I shouldn't say never, but most of the time there was not anger or consternation or anything like that involved. And, uh, you know, they, they conducted themselves as professionals, you know, until, you know, we, we messed up and we, we needed correction. So uh, in 2-6, uh, can, you, can you talk a little bit about your deployment? You went to Afghanistan and... Uh... Can you talk about any of the combat that you uh, were participated in and your reflections and experiences, what you felt as an individual? Oh, yeah. So that's, um, <laughs> okay. You're going to have to pick and choose here. There's a lot to unpack there. Yeah. Um, so our, our first deployment, as you know, it, it turns out, was not to Iraq, which at the time I was incredibly, incredibly disappointed and pissed off about. Cause that's what I signed up for, you know, um, you know, nobody joins the, uh, the varsity football team to be a, a water boy. Right. You know, so you want to actually get out there and, you know, validate all of this, this suffering and this hardship that you've been through when you're training and everything. Uh, but that wasn't our decision. And so we went through the deployment and looking back on it, I'm very glad that we had that extra time with our senior Marines to learn from them because the next deployment to um, Marsha, Afghanistan and Helmand province in 2010 was a particularly rough deployment, um, or so I'm told. 
Uh, now that was my first and only combat deployment. So that's the only one that I have to go off of, you know, um, I will say that some of the other, you know, more senior like platoon sergeant types and a couple of the squad leaders that we have that re-enlisted uh, to come with us, you know, that was their message to us, you know, that they wanted us to understand that it was a good solid deployment uh, in terms of what we were able to accomplish and the level of resistance that we faced. Um, and they want us to have that pride for the rest of our life, you know. Um, but as far as um, my time in, you know, when I when I look back on this in every unit that I was in, I typically I typically go to the people that really influenced me the most, you know. Um, and I'll I'll preface this by saying that there was not a single person that I did not interact with that I didn't learn something from. You know, that was one of the more beautiful parts about the infantry too. You know, I mean, today I can go to, I can go to work or I can go to the grocery store or something like that. And I can interact with somebody and gain absolutely nothing from that interaction. It is what it is, you know, and the same goes for other people too. Um, but in the infantry, that was not the case, now, at least for me anyway. So um, the, the first major influence that I want to bring into this and talk about is, um, a man by the name of Zach Walters. And after our first deployment, which was the 26th Marine Expeditionary Unit, uh, we came back home and uh, he became my squad leader. He came over from third platoon. We were in second platoon and second squad. Uh, I became his first team leader. Now, uh, there, there's one, maybe two times uh, in a young man's life where he meets somebody that is going to alter the course of his trajectory okay and I didn't know it at the time but you know that was Zach you know he was the guy for me um what I learned from him the example that he displayed would become the standard of what a leader should be for me um and you know we talked about training and stuff before um the way that Zach approached everything was vastly different than what I was used to. He was not the loud, boisterous drill instructor type, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, he was a he was a big brother. He was a consummate professional, you know, and he he was a hammer when he had to be, but because of the respect that he commanded through his proficiency, through his example, and through the way that he interacted with people, he didn't have to do that a lot. You know, there was maybe maybe two times where I heard, heard the man raise his voice in anger. Um, but so he took the, those big macro training practices that the Marine Corps had, and he added specificity to it. Um, he sharpened it a little bit. Um, the, those gross big muscle movement trainings, you know, became more nuanced. And he did this through, through study and personal development, which is another thing to me, you know, the only thing in, in my world that existed to this point was what the Marine Corps endorsed, you know, and he was the first example of somebody that looked to other militaries and other wars that were not related to America in any way, shape or form. And he would take from those and say, Hey, we're going to try this today. You know, prime example was the, uh, the Salu scouts that fought in the Rhodesian Bush war. He's a big fan of those guys. And he, we took some of their patrolling practices, some of their engagement techniques, 
and we incorporated those into how we trained. Wow. Um, and he inspired that and fostered that in the rest of us, you know, um, it, the result was it added a more lethal edge to the squad and it was fueled by cohesion and creativity. You know, the, that, that robot mentality of this is what the book says. So this is what we're going to do had no place in the squad at all. He wanted our brains working all the time, all the time. Um, you know, we sparred constantly and, you know, we spent every second of free time that we had, you know, patrolling or clearing out rooms. And he solicited input from every single man, every single man in the squad, regardless of your ability or your rank. Um, we were always thinking and trying new things. So, you know, now he understood who we were, though. He understood our styles and he understood how to task us appropriately as well. Um, I was the sledgehammer of the squad. Um, and that's not, that's not a pound my chest thing at all. That mentality, uh, got me into some very dark places as a leader later on down the road, which we'll get into, but Zach was the counterbalance to that. You know, he, he understood where I was and he understood how to kind of slowly push me in another direction, or at least show me the door so I could walk through it. Um, he was, a, like he was a very influential person in your development. So teaching tactics, teaching uh, these elements of the infantry culture, did he get into uh, the, the gray areas, the ethics of, of, of uh, the military force and employment and, and getting in those areas when you're actually in, in a situation where it's hard to tell who's good, who's bad, and, and how to handle the uncertainty of a situation those absolutely have to be made you know at the very at the very instant it's almost happening but have, can have dire consequences yeah uh yes he did and and that that same vigor that he approached you know other militaries with um was also directed towards any information that he could get on afghanistan on counterinsurgency and the types of messy situations that are presented um, you know, at the time, um, one of the the favored tactics of the Islamic terrorists was, you know, uh, female and children suicide bombers, um, or just the suicide bomber in general, uh, vehicle-borne IEDs, um, things of that nature, you know. And so he took these scenarios and he injected them into our training just to gauge our reactions, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. And then on the back end, he'd be like, hey, you did this. All right. What if you tried it this way? You know, it was never like a, hey, you have to do it like this. It was, I want you to think about this. Yeah. Consider your actions. Consider your train of thought leading up to the actions. And how could you have done it better? Right. You know, he wanted us to arrive at the conclusion. Um, and that really helped us. It did yeah. later on down the road. Thank God we never had to deal with, with, uh, with some of the scenarios we trained for. Um, but other Marines were not so fortunate. Other Marines within our unit and other companies, they did have to deal with suicide bombers. Mm -hmm. um, we dodged that bullet, though, so to speak. Okay, so can you take us into your deployment uh, to Afghanistan and, and the, the battle you were in at uh, Marja? I can. Um, and, you know, I guess that has to start um, 
right before we left, you know? Um, and I want to preface this by saying that um, some of the emotions and some of the things that I'm going to discuss in answering that are mine and mine alone. They cannot be tied to every man that's worn a uniform or even every infantryman or even the guys that were in, in the squad or in the company with me. Um, this is this is all just me, okay? Um, so, you know, we, we're a couple, couple of weeks out from deployment and, you know, we had this, this great relationship with this great, great squad leader, um, you know, and he was just, you take his dynamic form of leadership and you pair it with this sort of young and wild at heart personality, you know, and, and our nights out were, you know, Hey, let's go talk about the squad over steak and whiskey, you know? Um, let, let's think about ways that we can, you know, make this better and stuff. Like it wasn't work to us, you know, because we right. all created it together. Yeah. And so Zach, he extends to go on this deployment with us, you know, and his reenlistment ceremony or his extension ceremony was just us. It was the squad um, and his sweetheart at the time, a girl by the name of Vicky. And uh, so he went ahead on the advance party, you know, just to kind of get boots on boots on the ground and and see what we were getting into and kind of feed us some intel back uh, before and standard practice. Uh, they were out on patrol with uh, first battalion six Marines. That's who they were with because that's who we were gonna we were gonna rip out with in Marsha. Now, so June eighth of two thousand and ten rolls around five days before we deploy. We're set to deploy on the thirteenth, and I'm taking uh, two of my boot Marines to admin to do some last minute, you know, BS that we've got to do. And, you know, I'm, I'm on my way down to my truck with him and everything. And, and you know, I hear this voice, you know, out of the corner of our company, first sergeant's like, hey, where are you guys going? The afternoon, first sergeant, I'm taking these Marines over to admin. No, you're not. Go get over to the gazebo. So we had this little gazebo down by the water, um, just outside of the company area across PT Road. And so we get over there and, and there's this, you know, our, our all of our, um, senior enlisted personnel, our platoon sergeants and, you know, our company gunner sergeant and everybody, they're all on us real fast. Like, hey, you have to get everybody here right now, right now. You know, what was going on or anything like that, but eventually it happened. It took about an hour or so. And so first sergeant, Eric Kaysen, um, he brings us all around, no formation or anything, just an informal little school circle. And he says, uh, gents, there's no easy way to say this, so I'm just going to say it. Uh, we just got word that Sergeant Walters and Sergeant Champion were killed. And he continued on um, saying something. I don't, I can't remember what it was. At that point, I just kind of, everything else just kind of drowned out. Yeah. Um, there was this cold-hearted sort of shock and finality to what I had just heard. You know, nobody thinks it's going to be the number one guy. Nobody thinks that it's going to be that it's going to be somebody like Zach. You know, I believe that I could have been killed or anybody else in the squad, but not him. Right. And it's different when you when you think about losing people beforehand. You envision yourself in combat together. You envision yourself in any number of situations and scenarios, but you're all together when it happens. Yeah. We had so many questions. And no answers. The only thing that we knew was that they were killed by the same IED out on patrol with one six. 
that's it. And we wouldn't actually get solid answers. I, I wouldn't get solid answers until after that deployment, many years later, when I got in touch with uh, Marines that were there. But in that moment, and you know, this is where I want you guys to bear in mind what I opened this response with. In that moment, after that shock wore off, the only thing that I wanted to do was torch that entire country. Mm. You know, the, the mentality that I had trained with was more akin to, okay, this is a counterinsurgency environment. We're going to go over there. There's going to be a lot of fighting. That's primarily what we're there for. And if we have to help the locals out in order to achieve our goals, then so be, you know, but Zach's death brought out the mentality that I actually went to Afghanistan with. And that was, I care nothing for the local populace at all. They are a means to an end at best. This is about revenge at this point. Okay. Um, they killed my mentor and I wanted to repay that. And that can be, whether that's right or wrong or whether people think that reflects poorly on the services, that's that that's their decision um, to make on their own. But in that moment, that is what I felt. Now we didn't, it didn't play out that way. You know, as a unit, it is well known um, amongst infantry circles that we conducted ourselves with honor and according to the rules of war. We did, which is a testament to the leadership that we had, knowing full well that some of us would feel that way. Right. Okay. So I, I want to highlight that as well. Um, but the deployment itself, so we, there was an interesting period. We had five days left. I had just gotten married in November of the previous year. And instead of spending that time home with my wife, we were afforded the opportunity to go up um, north and receive Zach's body and Derek's body. Um, we met Regina Walters, his mother, and a close family friend of theirs. And we were able to spend a day with them and see that side of the Marine Corps and how that operates. Uh, it's a very sobering experience, to say the least. Um, it was close casket. Uh, Zach's belongings were, or what was left was in a box about like this big, you know, and when you think about the vibrant young man that he used to be and the impression that he made on all of us to see it reduced to that is a very, it's a cold dose of reality, you know, but um, we forged ahead because that's what Marines do. We didn't have a single man not show up when it was time for us to get on the buses and leave Camp Lejeune. Every single person was there and ready to roll. And not to mention that, a lot of our seniors that trained us and had since gotten out that were spread all throughout the country, the second that they heard about what happened, they were there. Mm. They showed up to see us all. And that says something about the respect that you gain in the infantry when you bleed together and suffer together and develop together. When something like this happens, you find out who your true friends are real quick, right. you know? So we deploy and we get over there. And overall, it was characterized by a lot of direct fire engagements. Um, 
the IED side of things was more, that was something that a lot of our sister companies had to deal with. Uh, we were fortunate enough that when we showed up, we stumbled across or found a lot of the the caches that they had of IED making materials. And that severely hindered their ability to employ those crude weapon systems against us. All right. Other companies were not so fortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, every patrol leaving for the first, I'd say, four months or so got into a firefight that was anywhere from, you know, a random pop shot to a three to seven hour full on troops in contact firefight. Um, at how first, did you, how did you feel the first fight that you got in the first firefight? So the first firefight that we got into was um, an infantryman will understand this because it's the, you know, I alluded to, you know, the, the water boy or the towel boy on the varsity football team earlier. It's kind of like that mentality. You know, you, you don't want to get over there and, you know, patrol your ass off for seven months and see nothing. You know, you've done all this work. You've destroyed your body. You've pushed your mind and everything that you are into developing into this this lethal human being. You know, you want to actually use those skills, okay? And so our first patrol out, um, we were we were out of a uh, combat outpost called Norea, which was down south. They attached our platoon to weapons company for this. And we left... Um, Early in the morning, I want to say around like zero seven or something like that. And I remember stepping outside the wire and we had this road um, called Elephants that was right outside our fob uh, or our cop, excuse me. And, you know, we crossed over that and into the wadi and we're walking towards the first uh, cornfield. You know, the stalks are about like head high or something like that. You can see the heat radiating off of them. It's like when somebody opens the door on a grill, you know, and you can see the heat coming off of the steak that's, you know, we were the stakes essentially. <laughs> and uh, I remember thinking to myself, like, this is real. Like, this is actually happening. We're finally here, you know? Um, I had to fight the urge to take my hand off my weapon and pinch myself. <laughs> um, and, you know, so we, uh, we were going to bait these guys. We knew they were out there. Our intel had told us that, uh, you know, they were operating in squad sized elements and they were training something similar to what we had done. You know, they were trying to organize and kind of recreate an actual formal fighting force. And so we were like, okay, bet, come get some. Let's see how this goes. Um, and so we set up in a, in a ditch that ran along this small group of compounds. And I sent a team on the inside, um, my first team to go and kind of check things out while I waited with the second team, hoping, hoping that they would, they would attack. And sure enough, um, you know, this plan that my team leaders and myself had come up with actually worked, you know, which is a, a rarity in combat. Your, your plan normally never works. Um, but they walked right into it, man. Um, they, they saw only four or five of us sitting out there and they were like, Hey, prime target. Um, and so they opened up on us. Um, Corporal Smith's team, the first team, they came running back out. And the way that we set up was the enemy had engaged from uh, a certain angle to this wadi, which ran in like an L shape, right? So 
we were here, the enemy was engaging in this direction, and then Smith's team set up like so. So we immediately had essentially like an L shape with intersecting fields of fire on um, and uh, chewed them up pretty good. You know, uh, they were about mm, 300 meters out or so. And, you know, we maneuvered constantly uh, back and forth to each man as Zach had trained us, you know, a little bit to the left, a little bit to the right, finding points of cover and driving the enemy from those points of cover so they can be flushed out in the open and finished off by your buddy. Um, that drakes you technique. And um, a cat team pulled up, called in an airstrike as well to finish it off. And when we got back, I say about six hours later or so, it was well into the afternoon at that point. Um, you know, they, they told us that we had a, you know, the pilots that were overhead could see the enemy that was a, it was a squad sized element. So about like 12 cats or so, and they had a pre-staged Aiden litter team. So they could see them moving up to the enemy firing points and pulling the casualties back. Um, but there was, there was not a lot left of those dudes uh, at that point in time. And I remember never having felt such accomplishment in my life. Mm. Um, and part of that does have to do with the fact that they had killed Zach. Um, and you know, one of my, one of the other squad leaders in our platoon shook my hand afterwards and, you know, he, he told us like, Hey, you guys can go home and, and tell Sergeant Walter's family that, you know, you got them. Right. So clearly I wasn't the only one that felt a certain kind of way about, about his death. Um, but that I'll never forget that feeling of elation and this overwhelming happiness to the point that, you know, we, I cleaned my weapon and I drank as much water as I could. And my body did like a force shutdown, mm. you know, all the chemical reactions in the brain and, you know, the physical physiological responses to that, just, I, I guess it just had enough, you know, I didn't stop in my travels to scoop up a medical degree from the local university, but um, I imagined that it had just kind of reached that point where it just needed to shut down and unplug for a bit. Um, but for the rest of the deployment, um, for us, it was a lot more of those types of direct fire engagements. And, you know, your original question of how did your first firefight feel, um, that's, that changes as you continue on and the more that you get into that. And about month three or about month four or so, that's when the ambush would be sprung and my first thought would be, God, I hope no, nobody gets killed today. Mm. So it shifted from that, that ruthless sort of optimism into more of a survival type mindset, okay. you know, um, which is natural, I think. Um, and my, my study of warfare at this point in, in my career was very rudimentary uh, to say the least. Uh, it was not detailed at all. So I didn't fully understand what was going on in my mind and, and in my body. Um, and yeah, from a combat perspective, it was a lot of direct fire engagements. And now, did you get your Marines home safely uh, throughout the deployment? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we were, uh, 
despite a ridiculous amount of close calls, um, we have one man get wounded, um, uh, Lance Corporal Binkley. He was a mortarman that since they couldn't use their mortars, the armories were, were much more restrictive on us than they were on uh, 1st Battalion, 6th Marines. Uh, we could not use mortars. So he was attached to our squad and uh, he carried the Mark 32 for us, which was essentially a giant, dirty, hairy revolver that shot 40 millimeter grenades. Awesome. Love that weapon system. I wish I could own one personally. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, and, and he used it kind of like a mortar system. When we would get into contact, you know, we would identify the, the enemy position and he would just put a linear sheaf on that, that Wadi system. Uh, that they were in because that's typically what they used um and so we were on a patrol and up north of a new combat outpost um called combat Out outpost kelly uh, they took us away from weapons company and moved us back with with echo company and we were on a patrol up there in a village um called mia kell um and third platoon or third squad was out there uh, with us as well. They had been out for a while. We had gotten called up on QRF because uh, they were in a nasty fight and that drug on for most of the morning and into the afternoon. We were going on, I want to say about eight hours or so outside the wire uh, at this point. Um, and there were some lulls in there too, but when we finally decided to return to base, third squad picked up and they moved first. They had been out the longest, you know, and so we, we watched their back, right? Well, I left uh, Corporal Smith's team in Awadi and uh, myself and uh, Lance Corporal Turnipseed's team, we picked up and moved first across the same open field. You know, so third squad was watching our backs. We had Smith's team as well. We felt pretty safe, right? We get about halfway through the field and the machine guns open up. So everybody hits the dirt. We all get online, just like our normal reaction. We start returning fire and everything. Well, Binkley gets up to rush forward so that he can he can clear his fields of fire and um as he's going to cradle his weapon as i understand it it's been some time since i spoke to him but as he's going to cradle his weapon a 762 round passes through his the bones in his fingers rides his forearm out and then blows out of his forearm um misses his ribs by like that much mm. so uh one of those million dollar wounds i guess um to say very, very, very sarcastically, because uh, that's something that the nature of that injury is something that I don't think he'll ever fully recover from. Um, but he was, you know, we, we medevaced him. Um, third squad leader, Sergeant Patol called in a, uh, a Cobra for gunship support because we were stuck out in the open. Um, so they bandaged him on the spot while the rest of us held on suppression. The airstrike came in and then shortly thereafter, the medevac bird sat down right behind us. We got him on the bird, stripped all of his gear, and uh, we we went back to back to Cop Kelly. Um, but he got home. Um, he got home just fine, and um, yeah, that was the only wounded that we had. Um, but uh, you know, I mean, as you know, slight breeze this way or that way, you know, one step left or right, things get in differently. And there was a lot of those instances, a whole lot. Yeah. Um, that could have deprived us of having this conversation today <laughs> or my children from being born. That's what I typically yeah. think about now. Um, well, you're, you gave a very good description of, of combat and, and um, those things that the person won't actually 
know unless they go through it. They can read about it, but I could feel as you were describing it, I could feel it myself. So I know just how um, impactful that was. Now your the rest of your tour, let's fast forward a bit through, you You had three tours of duty in the Marine Corps, as I understand it, with 2-6, Fast Company, and, and 2nd Battalion, 5th Marines out in Camp Pendleton. Is there anything from those tours of duty that you wanna bring out uh, in, in your story? Yeah, so um, uh, the, it's difficult when you know when you when you take into account you try and examine an entire decade of experience you know what what to pick and choose um so i guess briefly sticking to my um you know sticking to the key people that have that have impressed upon me the most um team leaders um one of the things that i learned in marcia um a lot of my flaws um, and a lot of preconceived notions that I had about combat and what a leader was supposed to be were very quickly shattered. Um, mm -hmm. And team leaders, I learned, were the key to everything as a squad leader. Um, their development, your relationship with them, how you communicate with them. Um, the somewhat on the tactical side of things, I was very confident in in my abilities and our performance as a squad in combat reinforced that. But from a leadership perspective, as a man, the importance of interpersonal communication and emotional intelligence was exposed to me in a very raw way. You know, um, I drove some wedges between myself and those two team leaders because I was in Afghanistan for a very different reason than they were. Corporal Smith wanted to help people. He legitimately believed in that part of the mission, okay? Lance Corporal Turnipseed valued the experience, the adventure, the journey of it, you know? I wanted to be the next Achilles. A lofty goal to be sure, but a very unrealistic one. Yeah. Um, and at the time being a young and, and frankly speaking, arrogant man, um, I was not going to admit that to myself, you know? So moving forward, I had to come face to face with those deficiencies and I had to figure out ways around them because if I was going to do this, then I couldn't continue the way that I was doing it before. Uh, so team leaders were the point of emphasis for me moving forward. And um, they drove me to excel. You know, so I had exceptional team leaders everywhere I went in the Corps. I was very fortunate for that. And, you know, when I got to Fast Company, they were wrong. You know, they were all fresh out of SOI, and then they went to another school called Basic Security Guard, and then we went to Fast Company together. So I was the only man in the squad that had combat experience, or, or any any experience outside of a schoolhouse to speak of. Now, Fast so, Company, I think we probably need to define that for our listeners that may not know what Fast is in the Marine Corps. Could you could you tell so, us that, please? Yes. Um, so Fast Company stands for Fleet Anti-Terrorism Security Team. It still falls under. Technically, it's, it still falls under the infantry, but the mission is to reinforce sovereign U.S. territory abroad, okay? So a, a support to the State Department's diplomatic mission, all right? Uh, very, very similar to the Marine Expeditionary Unit that we had on our first deployment where you're on a ship and you serve as like a reaction force to a certain part of the world. Um, we did that, but instead of being on a ship, it was in uh, the Kingdom of Bahrain, okay? That was our like jump off point, you know? 
Um, and those team leaders that I had in Fast Company, um, <laughs> as young as they were, I saw this, this fire, this vigor, this craving for knowledge and challenge in them. You know, and I didn't want them to look back on their experience in the Marine Corps and have that mentality of disappointment, you know, as if, you know, it, the Corps had failed them or something of that nature. Um, so it was my mission at that point, my personal mission to develop them, to challenge them, to give them what they craved. Um and that challenge went both ways and, and, and it, nobody ever spoke of it either. It was just implicit, you know, and that's something that characterizes the infantry as a whole as well. That implicit challenge, you yeah. know, that, that iron sharpens iron sort of mentality. Um, uh, basic proficiency just, just wasn't enough. You know, that was what the Marine Corps required, but I wanted brilliance in the basics and their hunger matched that. So I had to think outside the box. I had to grow myself in ways that I wasn't necessarily ready for, you know? So thankfully I had Zach's example to go off of. And I looked to other militaries, um, other wars from other countries. And I did my best to kind of foster that sort of ingenuity in them. You know, how can we look at somebody else's experience, even outside of our own country and find a way to help it benefit us, right. you know? Um, and, and they took that and they ran with it. Uh, my goal at the end of it, looking back was, I wanted to be able to say that every Marine that I had mentored had surpassed me in every conceivable manner of being an infantryman. If I could say that, then I would be a success. Yes. You know, and a little bit of that was, was probably some self-imposed penance for the, the leadership failures that I had early on as a squad leader. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, either way, that was, that was the driving force behind it. I wanted more for them. I wanted them to be able to have that leadership example that Zach gave me, even though I never asked him for it. That's just who he was, you know? Um, and, um, you know, the, uh, the personal study thing, that, that is an, an important point of emphasis for me. My wife, on our first deployment to Bahrain, sent me a book called um, Masters of Command and the Genius of Leadership by Barry Strauss. The first exposure that I had had to studying that period of the world was actually in the form of a novel called Gates of Fire by Stephen Pressfield. Yes. Um, but beyond that, I knew nothing of that, that part of the world or that time. And that book changed my perception of warfare. It altered how I approached training. It altered how I approached leadership. And to this day, I still refer to it even when I teach my children something. Wow. Um, we named our first son Alexander, ironically <laughs> enough. The book is based off of the analysis of Alexander the Great, Hannibal Barca, and Julius Caesar, the big three of ancient military history. And so that spurred, it, it, it put me on a different path. It was another alteration of trajectory, you know, and that fed into um, things that I taught them, and I saw them kind of take that on as well. Um, so I was very, I was very proud of them that they, they latched onto that and that they continued to develop themselves and that they challenged me to continue to get better. Um, yeah, I've seen a lot of, 
in your story, the power of the example, the power of Zach, the power of yourself and, and the power of growing and mentoring. And also now the power of the written word and learning from, from reading and reflecting and applying what you learn from that. Yeah, and it's uh, it's one of those things too. When uh, when Zach assigned me Gates of Fire, you know, my first response was like, you know, really, Sergeant, if I wanted to if I wanted to read, I would have gone to college. Yeah, you know, and <laughs> man, like I look back on that now, and I'm just like, dude, you're an idiot. Are you kidding me? You know, but I had no idea that that, that it would that it would alter alter my life so much, and that it would open up a completely different world to me. Yeah. You know, um, he did in some way, but I didn't, you know, and again, that just, that adds on to that example that, that you just mentioned, you know, he seemed to have a little bit of foresight that I just didn't understand at the time. So as we move forward into 2-5, there's two individuals that stand out. The first is um, a platoon commander by the name of Cliff Foreman um, that I had over there, and uh, he was a history graduate at Yale, um, which was ironic to me that he would end up here of all places. However, um, as a new lieutenant, he was possessed of an extraordinary confidence uh, that he tempered with humility. You know, he had that youthful sort of fire to be the best leader that he could, but his ego and his pride were never a part of the equation. Um, and uh, the last, but certainly not least, is a phenomenally lethal savage by the name of Chris Nelson, my last platoon sergeant before I got out. And um, he cared deeply um about us and um he reinforced the fact that the best leaders develop every aspect of their people not just the infantry things not just the skills needed and whatever emotional stability is required to function in a violent environment um but developing the the man as a whole will enable us to thrive in those environments survival was no longer what was necessary, okay? The survival was no longer the goal. It was thriving in that type of environment. Uh, he was a Ramadi veteran, um, hard as nails, and another force multiplier type like Zach. He amplified everybody around him, just like Zach did. Um, and uh, yeah, he uh, to this day, I'm still very good friends with both of those men. Uh, they've been very influential in this process of of me writing and starting the podcast and getting the story out there. Um, just really, really good men that I can go to and they will give me an honest, unbiased opinion about something, whether it's something that I want to hear or not. Uh, they tell me what I need to hear, you know, and I'm very fortunate to have, have men like that in my life. Um, but yeah, that, uh, those are the most influential people that come to mind um as far as you know my service goes and uh the team leaders um you know there's too many of them to name really right. that's that's the point you know um but that group and zach and uh cliff foreman and chris nelson um they 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 made me better men a better man they well, throughout your story you've sprinkled in lessons learned and reflections upon yourself but what would you advise somebody that uh was it in the military? What can they learn from a veteran and uh, perhaps pass along to to others? So uh, the first thing is is shatter your limiting beliefs. Okay. Um, 
And, and I think that this goes both ways. You know, there is a cultural divide, okay? And a necessary one, I believe. And I think that both sides of the equation that the infantry and American society at large can learn from each other. You know, that has to be a two-way street. There has to be honest dialogue there, a different kind of dialogue than we've seen in recent years. Um, the, the first time that I was exposed to this concept was in a book called Warriors and Citizens, which um, former Secretary Mattis edited along with Corey Shockey. And they talk about the civil-military divide and the different way of thinking and a whole slew of statistics that go with it. So much will make your brain hurt. Mm. Um, and um, accepting that um, the analysis that I put forth earlier, the point really that, that the culture is different would be the first thing that I would hope that many people would adopt. Um, I can't make anybody think a certain way. That's, that, that's not why I'm here, nor would I want to if I was capable. But um, so accepting that um, and then also the biggest thing that I think is there is good that comes from this type of life. Okay. You know, so oftentimes we get, we have this, this erroneous view that nothing good comes of war, that it's just, it, it's a last resort because it's all terrible and it's all bad and it brings out the worst in men, you know, and that view continues further into what we have today, which I think is a pervading mentality of all combat veterans having, you know, PTSD and being these riddled, broken, shattered men. Nothing could be further from the truth. I am, in, I, I am a much better man for my experiences than I would have been without them. As painful as they were, um, there is no question in my mind about that at all. I know that for fact. And my children are much better off for it, for the man that it shaped me into. So, um, you know, war and the preparation for war, um, you know, they, they, they bring out these qualities in men, you know, discipline, toughness, selflessness. Um, and that's what, that's what helps develop us into a better version of ourselves. You know, and I find in my time afterwards that why, while I made a lot of mistakes when I got out, um, a lot of that was um, because I listened to that mentality and I filled my head with that mentality that we're supposed to be victims. We're supposed to be shattered and broken and, and, and messed up, you know, instead of looking at the example of men like John Glenn, you know, he went to Vietnam and came home and said, you know what? I'm not done yet. I think I want to go into space. I'm going to do that. <laughs> and he got done with that. He's like, yep, still not done. I'm going to run for office. I want to make this country better, you know? Yes. So my question is, where's our John Glenn? Where's our generation's John Glenn? Mm -hmm. You know, I think the reason why we haven't produced a man of that caliber or the caliber of Alexander the Great or Hannibal in, in such a long time is because of, because of that limiting belief and because that... You know, we have these these notions that there's nothing good that comes from combat or from the preparation for war or that there should be no separate culture. You know, um, that would be what I would want people to take away from this, you know, and the, the ways to go about it are not that hard. You know, one cut, cut Hollywood. Hollywood is a terrible representation, by and large, 
of the military as a whole, of the infantry, and especially anything with Vietnam. You know, um, there's plenty of good good books out there and Vietnam veterans that will tell you a very different story than what Hollywood displays. Okay. Um, uh, I would read a book. Um, I would find some podcasts. Um, and I would try and hunt down some veterans and I would talk to them about it. And also there's recruiting stations around. You really want to know what it's like, make the commitment, make the commitment for yourself, you know, because if you, if you, you get out of it, what you put into it, just like anything else in life. And if you put into it, everything that you have, then the return on investment will be so much more than you can imagine. Right. So you mentioned your podcast and you mentioned your book. I'd like to close with a discussion of that, uh, your podcast and um, what is it about in your book? What is that about and what's driven you to do these things? So um, the podcast is, you know, was, was a result to, you know, start up an honest dialogue with people, do the things that we just discussed in the previous, in the previous question. Um, and I do plan on announcing the book on that platform when, you know, I finalize some things with my publisher, which is Tactical 16. Um, if you want to know more about the book, be looking at their website for that. Um, but the podcast examines these experiences in, in much more detail than what we've discussed here. I outline specifically what I believe the infantry values are. Um, the values that are the foundation of any culture, I think, and those separate values that I've alluded to multiple times, I break them down in in detail. Um, so as of right now, that's the type of content that's out there. But what I'm hoping gets accomplished with that is that people see that it is a different and fresh perspective uh, that's contrary to most of what is out there and that it can they can take things from that. That while the culture and the lifestyle may be very different than American society, it doesn't mean that we can't apply some of those things into our everyday lives in order to enrich our experience as Americans. Right. You know, I do it every single day and I see the positive effects on my sons and on my wife, you know? Um, and uh, the book. So the book is... is Technically speaking, I guess you could call it a memoir, um, but when it's read, I did my best the way that I constructed this to, to present all these things, to present the infantry culture, to present what, it's, what it actually means to us, to those of us that shared it, um, the good that can come from that, okay, and to utilize my experiences not as a means of advancing personal fame or glory, but to examine these incredible examples that I have, these men that that altered my trajectory and put me on a path to deep personal development that I still continue to this day. You know, I I, I mentioned a you know a dark period after I got out. Well, you know, I started drinking because I listened to the wrong influences. And the Marine Corps didn't do that to me. The war didn't do that to me. Afghanistan didn't do that to me. Nobody put a gun to my head and made me do it. I made those mistakes. Mm. Personal accountability and responsibility. And once I figured that out, 
I used the exact same things, those values. I found ways to incorporate those values that I learned in the infantry culture to pull myself out of that pit and to move forward. I've been working on this book since 2016. Okay. So it's been, what is that? Seven years, roughly. Right. And here we are. It's at the Pentagon right now, pending their review. So I'm sure that they're going to shred it to pieces and send it back to me. And there's, you know, there's going to be another process involved. It'll be draft number eight. So be it. Um, but it's finally, it's finally coming together. And another thing that I hope people can pull away from this is I hope that it can shape how we are remembered as a fighting generation. Each generation has its own unique character. It's not to say that one is better than another. It's just different. They're the product of the war that they fight in, the culture and how that is prior to that war. And I really hope that it can go a long way in presenting us in as who we actually are, not how generals or politicians or Hollywood depict us. Right. And the title of the book, I believe, is going to be called Savages? Yes, sir. That's correct. And uh, I look forward to reading it. And I hope you'll give me a signed copy if I send it to you. <laughs> to I will, sir. Absolutely. Yes. Yes. Um, well, um, I'd like to thank you for appearing on our Veterans Breakfast Club History Project. Your story is very compelling. And the themes that I took from it about growth and development, but the role of mentorship and looking looking forward always to a larger purpose and not only within yourself, but outward to others too in their development and building a team of cohesion. And along that path, uh, keep reaching for something, keep reaching, but also don't forget where you came from, those values and that foundation that you've built, uh, not easily done, but that foundation that you've built throughout your life and your experiences really can serve you well in the future. So I will let you have the, the final word, Stu. And, and on behalf of the Veterans Breakfast Club, I, I thank you again for sharing your story with us. Well, thank you for the opportunity, Brad. Um, it's, uh, again, another moment that, that's forced me to grow a little bit. Um, you know, I, I put in some intense preparation for this over the last week. Um, but I would be... It would be wrong of me to not mention two more very brief um, influences in my life. The first would be my father, um, and not to marginalize or, or lessen the influence of my mother or my siblings or anything, but there is something to be said about a man that grows up with a strong father figure in his life. Um, and, you know, my father was that strong father figure, still is to this day. Um, and I remember in Paris Island, the first letter that I wrote was just to him, as much as it probably killed mom, but I, I wrote my letter, my first letter to my dad, and I thanked him for the way that he had raised us, mm. um, because that was the foundation that allowed us to pursue this dream. Um, the second is a man by the name of uh, Nick Kumulatsos. Um, he's currently, he has a program that helps, uh, that helps people become the best version of themselves. And that has gone a long way into helping me actually navigate some of these, you know, obstacles to get to this point. 
um, and to develop further. We all reach a point when we need some sort of outside help. You know, we need a tribe. We are tribal people. And his program called the Agogi has gone a long way in helping me out in in this endeavor. Um, so, you know, I, I'm um, forever grateful to both of those two men, along with the other influences that I've had. Um, and this has been a, a phenomenal opportunity, sir. I, I can't thank you enough for for hearing me drone on for about the last hour or so. Um, and I hope that I hope that people actually glean from this what is in, in, intended to do and show them a different perspective and not meant to be condescending in any way or demeaning or, um, you know, or, or demoralizing or marginalize the service of anybody outside the infantry. That's not what it's meant to do. You know, this is just my perspective. This was my experience, a very brief synopsis thereof. But read the book, you know, if you if you want a if you want a more in-depth look at that and listen to the podcast, you know. Um, so thank you very much, sir. All right, Stu. Well, thank you. And and uh, we hopefully we'll have you on the Veterans Breakfast Club to talk about your book. And so our listeners can inter interact with you. And and uh, I think uh, we reinforce all the time. The best way to thank a veteran is to ask them about their story and uh, and listen to it. So once again, thank you, Stu. Mm -hmm.